I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. This is a paid advertisement from BetterHelp. As a podcast listener, you've heard from us before. Today, let's hear from our members about what online therapy has done for them. I would recommend my therapist 1,000 times over. She has truly changed my life. The day after my first session, my friends and family said I sounded like myself again for the first time in weeks. You deserve to invest in your well-being. Visit BetterHelp.com to see what it can do for you. That's BetterHelp.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're tuned to the Steve Donahue Show on CPL Radio, your one-stop daily source for Steve's take on the world of books. And now your host, the book critic who literally reads everything, Steve Donahue. Greetings, fellow patrons of the Cedarburg Public Library, and welcome back to the Steve Donahue Show, where we talk about bookish news, views, and reviews with resolute attention. <laughs> Our news today is hardly late and breaking stuff. It actually centers around a book that came out in 1951, Catcher in the Rye. J.D. Salinger's immortal, over-analyzed, over-hyped, and now over-venerated novel about teenage sourpuss Holden Caulfield and his inner rages against pretty much everything the oh-so-phony world around him. <laughs> Catcher in the Rye is now an immovable fixture on the American literary landscape, and it got there by two tried-and-true methods. First it was banned, and then it was assigned. For years, pious school districts all over the country reacted to Holden's foul language and rotten attitude, both conveyed with a directness that's easy to imitate, but impossible to duplicate, uh, by banishing the book from their classrooms. Uh, this alone would have made it wildly popular with the very readers these censors were trying to protect, a thing you'd think censors would have learned at any point in the last 7,000 years. Uh, but the fact that the book is A, well-written, B, about a teenager, C, relatively short, also made it perversely attractive to the teachers faced with the problem as old as civilization how to get teenagers to read. The result is an almost depressing ubiquity. There's scarcely an American high school student who hasn't at some point in, been instructed to read this book. And it... Uh, my producer is holding up a sign saying, I had to read it in high school! I've responded with a particular South Boston hand gesture indicating that I couldn't possibly care less. Where was I? Alright. Uh, one effect... Uh, of this ubiquity has been that The Catcher in the Rye has attained a generational reading experience in American life. People who encountered it as teenagers 
not only remember that original encounter in their older years, but run a high risk of watching their own teenage children encounter the book as well. In this way, it becomes the perfect vehicle for both narcissism and condescension. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but when it comes to what Gore Vidal used to refer to as the book chat world, and I think about narcissism and condescension, I automatically think of one thing, the infamous literary think piece. And a poor old Holden Caulfield, forever trapped as a callow teenager who'd have cheered up mighty quick if he'd ever been kissed on the mouth, or done a few push-ups, or picked up a hobby. Poor old Holden is regularly the subject of these think pieces. The online literary Omnium Gatherum site LitHub has one such just recently, a piece by Mary O'Connell that sparked a few conversations about whether or not it's still in any way acceptable to spend time with Catcher in the Rye. O'Connell confesses that when she was a teenager, she fell in love with Holden Caulfield and daydreamed about walking the streets of Manhattan at his side. She relates how defensive this literary love affair made her when she reached college and met readers who asked her about her favorites. Uh, I should, I knew I should have said wise blood in a hushed, reverent tone, is what she writes. But Flannery O'Connor was very racist, yes, even for her time, and I found her writing cold and overly orchestrated. <sighs> of course this isn't true. And it's untrue in exactly the way literary think pieces always are, the naked opportunism of the politics of the moment. In the 21st century, readers are no longer expected to separate the artist from the art. Quite the opposite. The art hardly matters at all. All that matters is that the author pass a Twitter gauntlet of correct opinions. What O'Connell really means in that quoted passage is, quote, Flannery O'Connor was very racist, and thus I found her writing cold and overly orchestrated. But it's not enough to be censorious towards low-hanging fruit, like the great Flannery O'Connor, whose writing is neither cold nor overly orchestrated, I should point out, and whose writing you can like regardless of her racist opinions. Uh, I think pieces, in think pieces like this, it's also incumbent on the author to end up disapproving of Holden Caulfield. O'Connell addresses her think piece to Holden himself, passionately telling him, you were for me, you were always for me. But that passion apparently had a half-life. Uh, quote, I reread you recently, now that the sting of our high-stakes history has cooled. Like any middle-aged person scouring Facebook to appraise their first love, I was disappointed to find you had not aged perfectly. In her piece's best and most telling passage, she watches that generational aspect of The Catcher in the Rye unfold with her own children. This is what she writes. My own teenagers read you and found you neither enchanting nor life-changing, but bright white, entitled, homophobic. Seeing my daughter curled up in a soft reading chair with you brought me such a fullness of joy, owed to the circle of life, to the passing of the literary torch. But soon enough she looked up, troubled. What does flitty mean? she asked. When my son finished reading you, he told me, gently, I don't think this is the kind of book people like anymore. In one generation you devolved from a receptacle of aspirational dream life slash kindred spirit to the creepy trumper uncle nobody wants to sit next to at Thanksgiving dinner. <clears throat> that last note elaborated on in a recent... Uh, it's, that last note about the, the, the creepy trumper uncle elaborates on a recent Reddit post uh, in which the poster announced, quote, I've started to read The Catcher in the Rye because it's a classic blah 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 and cannot help but read it in Donald Trump's voice. 
And although the original poster was promptly mobbed and vilified and doxxed and driven to pull down the post and flee the country, uh, because this is 2020 America, uh, the connection made, the central observation, is an easy one to make. The Catcher in the Rye is narrated in the first-person viewpoint of a poisonously selfish, stream-of-consciousness, whiny loser. So hearing the book in the cadence of Donald Trump is so easy as to be inescapable. That doesn't excuse O'Connell's repulsive, condescending censorship, keep in mind. When she has her son pityingly say, I don't think this is the kind of book people like anymore, she's backhandedly advocating the disgusting 21st century like, comment, subscribe yardstick for measuring the worth of literally everything. If people don't like it anymore, it can't be any good, can it? And if there's any way this or anything else can be connected to Donald Trump, you'd be risking your entire social media profile to like it, right? As with the national economy, the pandemic response, the legal system, the healthcare system, the national reputation, and the environment, so too with canonical literature, a connection to Trump is the kiss of death. But Donald Trump is not the sole Achilles heel of the catcher in the rye, and you don't need to stray far from LitHub to know that. In fact, you don't have to stray at all. You can just stay right on the website. Simply venture back before the Trump election, back to 2015, and you'll find a different but very similar bit of Holden bashing. This time, it's written by Alison Curry, and passionately not to Caulfield, but to J.D. Salinger. Curry's stance is nearly identical to O'Connell's. At the very impressionable time in her young life, she was smitten by the catcher in the rye and Salinger. Quote, he coddled me and petted me in a place where I, outside his pages, felt perpetually misunderstood. And here's another quote. Salinger made it easy to blame the corrupt and phony world around me, not my own flaws and shortcomings, for my discomfort and my isolation. But again, the connection doesn't survive, and Curry's reassessment is even more brutal than O'Connell's. Here is her reassessment. Upon rereading Catcher, upon rereading, Catcher fell apart for me. It felt heavy and soggy and sad where it had once been this lovely, buoyant thing. Most of all, it was cripplingly embarrassing. Reading Catcher at 28 felt like reading my own 10th grade journals, and no one who has any hope of, a living, of living a proud, confident life should be forced to get inside their own head when they were a teenager. But that's exactly what we have to do with Holden Caulfield. We're inside the mind of the worst kind of criminal. An angry, privileged, genius-smart, piercingly perceptive, extravagantly self-righteous, totally unself-aware teenage boy. The core of the problem here is that startling transition in the passage that I just quoted. I'm sure you caught it yourself. Being a teenage boy is directly equated with being a criminal. If that's a reader's attitude going into a rereading of Catcher in the Rye, there's no way for poor old Holden to win. Coincidentally enough, I recently reread the book myself. I've never been a big fan of Salinger's writing tricks, and The Catcher in the Rye in particular always bothered me with its patronization and plotlessness. Uh, this time around, I found myself enjoying the sheer kinetic readability of the thing more than I had ever done before, and I enjoyed watching the flickering of Salinger's prodigious intellect just under the surface of Holden's verbal posturing. So I've come to at least partially like The Catcher in the Rye at just the wrong time. <laughs> 21st century think pieces have branded sad sack Holden Caulfield an avatar of both toxic masculinity and Trump-style brain damage. Surely it won't be long before the book is summarily removed from all those high school reading lists, and when that happens, the book's death throes won't be far behind. That'll be a shame. Despite what O'Connell and Curry imply, this book still reaches young people. And that's rare enough to preserve. Uh, but 
hey, at least it might mean there'll be no more condescending think pieces on how we should totally, like, totally cancel Holden Caulfield. We might lose the book, but we'll lose treatments like this, and maybe that's a kind of fair bargain. <laughs> uh, now, that's been on my mind for this episode of the Steve Donahue Show for today. It's been all Catcher in the Rye and all Holden Caulfield. Uh, I'll look forward to talking to you all tomorrow. Uh, and in the meantime, I wish you all a very good bookish day. The Steve Donahue Show is a production of CPL Radio, a service of the Cedarburg Public Library located in Cedarburg, Wisconsin. new glasses or want a fresh new style warby parker has you covered glasses start at just 95 bucks including anti-reflective scratch resistant prescription lenses that block 100 of uv rays every frame's designed in-house with a huge selection of styles for every face shape and with warby parker's free home try-on program you can order five pairs to try at home for free shipping is free both ways too go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free warbyparker.com slash covered ACAST powers the world's best podcasts here's a show that we recommend hi I am Dori Shafrir the co-host of the podcast forever 35 which is all about the things we do to take care of ourselves and starting next week we have a new co-host it's me. I'm Elise Hugh. I am an author, journalist, and a podcaster. Yay! Elise and I are going to be getting into a lot of the same topics that we've always talked about on Forever 35, like skincare, like getting older, and of course, Forever 35 faves like butt care and Costco. She said Costco. <laughs> I said it. I'm so excited to be coming along on this journey. I am so excited to have you. So listen to Forever 35 wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.